You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Since the beginning of time, people have been trying to speed things up. Um, and everybody is trying to accelerate, you know, all the time. And so my clients are constantly sitting with me and saying, why does everything take so long? And how can I speed it up? And what will really accelerate uh, what it is that we're trying to do here? How do we move from lead to a sale faster? How do we get to the next purchase or ascension purchasing faster? Um, how do we create business growth faster? Right? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is how we accelerate progress, uh, however you define that, in your businesses. And here's what you need to know. If you're going to accelerate beyond a normal and ordinary and average pace, there's two things that are true. One is you can't be caught dead doing the things that everybody else in your field, in your industry, in your type of business, in your community does. Uh, you, you just can't. Uh, Coach Spurrier, if you caught it yesterday during the panel, he said, you know, one of the things I knew when I came into coaching is I had to find a way to do it differently than everybody else was doing if I was going to rise up through the ranks. And this is an easy thing for everybody to conceptually agree to. Everybody's happy to wear the T-shirt that says Renegade. They're not necessarily totally tuned into being one. So that's the first thing you need to know is you cannot be caught dead doing anything that people at a slower pace than you desire are doing. It's not, the relationship is not coincidental, right? So, for example, if everybody uh, that you know um, is, uh, even in a seminar, got their devices open and is doing stuff, if you didn't know better, you could know just because they're all doing it that you don't want to do it. The second thing is, speed requires some sort of force multiplier. It requires finding some element of your business that you can put a multiplier effect to in order to get speed. So we're going to talk about a handful of those this morning. The first one is really pretty simple, and it is to stop all the inventing and innovating and changing. People love to go play there rather than confronting the things that will really drive business. So this is a um, this is a uh, anti-gravity pen. Um, it write, it'll write upside down. So if you have one of those things you hang from at home for your back in, by your ankles, you can actually write with this on a little pad while you are hanging upside down from your ankles. It was invented by NASA because they had a problem, right? So when the first mission, you remember uh, one small step for non-gender specific, <laughs> non-denominational human units, one giant step for plant, animal, and humankind, that thing, they, um, 
um, they needed a pen that would write in an anti-gravity environment. So they spent $100 million, uh, your tax dollars at work, inventing this pen. Uh, the Russians had the same problem with Sputnik. Um, uh, they solved it for a buck and a half uh, with a thing called a pencil, um, which uh, is an anti-gravity here, souvenir. Um, so they solved it with a pencil, right? So there's a lot of invention that goes on in businesses. So here's another item that kind of gripes me. You guys all probably brought one of these with you. If you didn't, this one's still clean. Um, um, feel free to come up when we break and fight over it. Uh, this is a toothbrush. You all know what these are. It's a stick with bristles on it. And it worked fine, by the way, just the way it was. If you've ever left, come to an event without one and got one from the front desk, or if you stay in a cheap place, they usually have them. They're the old. They're just a toothbrush in cellophane. That's all they are. This, however, has been innovated and innovated and innovated. So they started, the first thing they did is these blue, uh, you see the blue bristles in the middle, right? Those are there in case you're too dumb to notice that the bristles have turned into a solid block of cement. As the blue goes away, it's to tell you it's time to get a new toothbrush. So that was a vitally important invention. Then, then they invented the aerodynamic handle for less wind resistance. So in case you're brushing your teeth, I guess, outdoors on I-95 uh, on a windy day, this will help. And then apparently a lot of people couldn't hold on to these things, so we rubberized the grip. That was the next innovation to the toothbrush. And then finally, we put a little vibrator in it just to make it more interesting. This is, see now, you cannot tell me, there's only two women that laughed, and you cannot convince me. I know better. Anyway, so they have innovated, they have innovated, there we go, catch up. I know it's early, I know it's early, but please. Um, um, and you can explain all of this to the millennial next um, so we have innovated the hell out of the toothbrush, right? And while everybody was doing this, here's the conversation I promise you that was not occurring. How the hell do we sell a lot more toothbrushes? That gets lost in the invention. And the more people are into, let's reupholster the product, the less they are into selling the product. So the first multiplier is, at least for a while, invent less, implement more. That's the first force multiplier I know. And I am constantly talking clients out of innovation that would even give me money. So I had a client, we had the longest running lead generation uh, television infomercial, still holds the record. 
um, almost nine years, eight and a half years with zero change in it. And it literally made him rich. And after the first six months, my job almost every week was to talk him out of making a new infomercial. Despite the fact that that's how I would have made money. Because he got up in the middle of the night, he's an old guy like me, and so he got up in the middle of the night four or five times and his infomercial was on. And he would stop and watch it before he went to bed. And so if you watch this show five times a night, uh, you begin to think everybody has seen it and everybody is bored with it and it's time to get a new one and we can make it better. And he would have, for this conversation, have sat and made a long list of ways that we could make it better. And I would always say, are the numbers showing trouble? No. No, no, no. Everything's the same. Cost of lead, cost per sale, right? Uh, it, it works great. But everybody's seen it, and they're bored with it. And I got this long list of things we can do to improve it. And I said, no, here's what you should spend your time on. Buy more time and run it more often and leave it alone. And I have these conversations all the time. I had two of them yesterday. And it varies business by business by business by business, but it's always largely the same conversation. So I try and get clients to do this. Lock it, load it, sell it. Unless and until you can convince me that you have used up your capacity of eligible buyers, I would like to lock things, load things, sell things. And I'm going to give you a few examples just to try and drive home the point. So how many of you in here own the magnetic marketing system. Raise your hands. All right. How many of you bought it five years ago? You learn more, by the way, if you look around at everybody else than if you look at me. Uh, how many of you bought it 10 years ago? There you go. So I could keep going. Rick, when did you buy magnetic marketing? 25 years ago. So that product went almost 15 years with no changes, none. The chief speech that sold it, the sales pitch for it, for which there was a 75-minute version, a 90-minute version, a 180-minute version, and a long-form sales letter version, there were no changes from 1997 to 2010. None Zero, nada. And as a speech, by the way, just as Ed said about his memorized how to get the plane on the ground in one piece thing, uh, you could wake me up in the middle of the night and give me three words from anywhere in that presentation and I could start. I knew it. The reason the NFL has so much trouble with quarterbacks coming out of college right now is they've been allowed to go without memorizing anything. You can see them. They got that, the thing on their sleeve is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger that's got all the plays on it, and they got 12 seconds to call a play. So it's a problem. 
Um, and so that was locked. And then the question, so here's the question, is when you got a winner, how many opportunities to deploy it can be found? Not let's go screw with it. How many opportunities to deploy it can be found? Magnetic marketing and its pitch, I delivered it as a speaker. Bill Glazer delivered it as a speaker. We had distributors selling magnetic marketing. My direct mail that went to audience members who did not buy, which is generally referred to as an appointment no-sale strategy, sold it. In others' catalogs, Nightingale Conant, Sky Mall, of all places, Miles Kimball, which won't mean anything unless you're old. Um, 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 package inserts in other companies, shipments of hard goods, on and on and on and on, all the way into video sales letters, webinars, and so forth. And I resisted the urge. So Zig and I, Zig, Zig, Zig and I used to have this conversation all the time. So Zig is, was 10 years roughly older at it than I was. And you do get bored with the same presentation. And so Zig every morning fooled around with his presentation just a little. Something out of the newspaper. Something like I did this morning. But if you're there to sell, you really ought not do that. Right? Um, uh, because whatever you took out to make room for that little messing around to entertain yourself was important to be there. So I never changed. Not a word. You could set the clock by when I hit a particular word in that script. It was locked and loaded, and the job was how many places, how many ways can we deploy this winner? There's a company called Omaha Steaks. How many of you know Omaha Steaks? Right? There you go, a bunch of you. Right? Um, we got an audience that, how many of you order from Omaha Steaks? Look around, you'll learn more looking at them. Now let's see, how many of you order from Allen Brothers? Uh, cheapskates. So, so you're paying three times what you could pay the local butcher, but you're not yet paying eight times. So you'll get there. But Omaha Steaks has been in their business a long, long time. They have three basic new customer acquisition offers. Two of the three have not changed since 1975. They are the exact same promotional new customer acquisition offers. And their executives are disciplined enough to sit in a room and have a conversation about how many opportunities to deploy this winner can we find? We run you down an Omaha Steaks list. They missed a couple, but so they do their own direct mail for those offers. They use credit card statement stuffers a lot. The little buck slip that's in with your Visa statement or your MasterCard statement or your Amex statement or your Diners Club statement. They use package inserts a lot in with hard goods. So pretty much any kind of product that's being shipped to somebody 
dumb enough to pay three times butcher shop prices for steaks, there's a package insert in there with the shipment. Uh, they advertise in magazines. They advertise in USA Today with remnant space. Radio and TV, they use a lot of it seasonally. Father's Day and Christmas, generally. And that's about allocating your resources. So most big, dumb companies, they have an ad budget and they equalize it for the year. And they spend the same amount of money every month as they spend in any other month. Smart companies allocate the money uh, up and down. They've turned the offer into a gift certificate for consumers so their customer can give it away to somebody. They've turned it into a reward certificate that employers can get to give away as an employee perk or a sales award. Um, it's online all through their own sites and their own marketing. It's online in their Amazon store. Now, they have missed Yellow Pages, and you do have to explain that to millennials. It, it's kind of like Google, um, uh, but it's yellow, um, and in most markets it's thick, and it hasn't gone away at all, by the way. So they missed yellow pages, and they missed what we teach is out-of-category advertising. They really should be in the yellow pages under butchers and under caterers and in five or six categories, and they missed Valpac. But they're in a lot of media with an offer that has not changed since 1975. My client, Guthrie Ranker, who owns, owned Proactive, now Nestle owns most of it and they own part of it, but Proactive, for those of you that don't know, is the Acne Glop, uh, by far the number one selling Acne Glop um, in the world. And um, about a one, uh, $1.2, $1.3 billion a year business. Uh, built by TV infomercials and then short-form TV commercials. And a lot of people think of it connected to that. So when you say proactive to them, they think TV infomercial. First of all, there hasn't been a TV infomercial for it on the air for at least four years. But people think they saw it last night because they have it connected to that in their head. Uh, what have they used to build proactive? Same product. No change in the product occurred until three years ago in about a 15-year span. So give or take for a dozen years, zero change in the product. Zero change in the acquisition offer for at least that long. QVC, that's a home shopping channel, for those of you who don't know. Uh, radio, terrestrial and satellite, standard spot and host voiced spots. Dr. Laura, which would immediately make sense to you. Glenn Beck, which might not immediately make sense to you. Print, magazines, newspapers, if she's here, that's kind of like your Facebook news feed, but it's on paper. Um, newspaper freestanding in inserts, credit card statement stuffers, package inserts, catalogs, yellow pages, they did figure that out. And so for several years, you found proactive under, for example, dermatologists in the yellow pages. Uh, mall carts, uh, which have gradually been replaced with vending machines because the machine is so much more reliable than the, I'm not kidding, than the humans. Uh, the sales results are more consistent. And by the way, they show up on time. Um, um, and online and social media. 
um, to beat this up because it is important. How many of you recognize this little puppy? It's called Mad Labs. How many of you have ever played Mad Labs? Raise your hands. You'll learn more looking around than you'll learn looking at me. All right? So Mad Labs, you all know what it is, so I don't need to describe it to you. Uh, Mad Libs is connected to me by my very first job in life. So my only job um, uh, was as a sales rep for the publisher, the publishing company. Um, you can stay on me for a while, guys, if you want to. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I took all the trouble to... Yeah. Um, um, well, I mean, I could have just... A friend of mine had one of them show up for a job interview last week in yoga pants and a uh, T-shirt. And she asked her if she came from yoga class. And the young one said no. And she said, well, you might want to go there because <laughs> you're not going to be working here. Um, um, so Mad Lives, first job I ran, um, 1974, as a territory sales rep for the publishing company that publishes Mad Lives. Um, it was created by uh, Roger Price and Leonard Stern. Some of you might know Leonard Stern as a TV producer. Uh, McMillan and Wife, um, uh, Columbo, those kind of shows. Um, so uh, when I was hired by Price Stern Sloan, 90% um, of their business was with independent bookstores and um, department store book departments. So at the time, all the stores like Macy's had a book department. Um, and that was their whole business. And it seemed to me there was more leverage. So I was largely responsible for entering toy stores, um, cooking and kitchenware stores, uh, car washes, uh, head shops. Um, uh, and, and we literally, they literally created some Mad Libs and some other products to go into head shops because I was effective at getting them into head shops. Uh, restaurants, uh, catalogs, and we had some Price Turn Sloan products authored by famous comedian Shelley Berman and Rodney Dangerfield at the time. They all did shows. I was the only one with the brains to do pop-up store, what's today called a pop-up store, and follow them from theater to theater to theater. Um, so in my five-state territory, in one year I outsold all the prior reps by five times. And, um, of course, I violated all the rules about selling only in territory, but that's neither here nor there. Um, um, so it gets us to the second multiplier, which is the old asset, newly leveraged. And almost every business has or has access to old assets. So let me just take you through some examples you are aware of. We are, we're, here we are in Disney World, um, really the entire city. Um, places like SeaWorld consume the crumbs um, left over by Disney. So Disney bought Marvel. Marvel was a old always struggling um, asset, um, often in financial trouble, um, yet Iger was accused of grossly overpaying 
for Marvel. At the time that Disney bought Marvel, all the financial news, oh my God, he's paid three times what he should have for Marvel and what on earth does he need more characters for because they already got all these characters. He had all the money back with the first movie um, because there's all these distribution pipelines to drop it into. The home party, very old asset, party plan selling dates to the 1920s in America. Um, home Shopping Network and then QVC is essentially party plan selling via the television screen. Trump's rallies, which helped put him in the White House, was simply the Amway rally, the Herbalife rally, the multi-level marketing company rally with the product left out. It was choreographed exactly like that, which he saw when he was briefly associated with a couple of MLMs, and largely the same audience. So old asset leveraged for new purpose, and then into new media, televised. So how many of you have been in one of the MLMs where there's a big monthly rally? And you go to the rally, raise your hands. You learn more looking around at that, okay. So you probably recognized what you were seeing if you watched a Trump rally on TV instantly. The George Foreman Grill. How many of you own a George Foreman Grill? How many of you have it put away, not on the countertop being used? Of course. Okay. Uh, how many of you bought a George Foreman Grill as a Christmas gift for somebody at the last minute that you couldn't think of anything else to buy them, and so screw it, they're getting a George Foreman Grill? Raise your hands nice again. Okay. Prior to it becoming the George Foreman Grill, that's the only way it was sold, the last way. That product, at the time that they attached George Foreman to it, was more than 25 years old. It was sold in the cookware sections of department stores, but pretty much only brought out for the holiday shopping season when a lot of people buy stupid kitchen appliances for Aunt Marge because they can't think of anything else to get her. So that's when the toaster oven that is also a pencil sharpener and plays music comes out of the back room and is sold. That was that grill before George Foreman and TV. The George Foreman grill, his endorsement money alone put him in the top five athletes of endorsement money so far. I think about everybody that gets endorsement money or got endorsement money that you can think of who you would think Michael Jordan, LeBron, go down the list, George Foreman on one product, his share by moving an old, tired, sad, only brought out at Christmas product into a new place and leveraging the old asset. My friend, the late Joe Cosman. How many of you know the name Joe Cosman? Not bad. You can Google it, um, Wikipedia it. It's amazing. Nouns are now verbs. Um, um, so Cosman 
uh, did it 10 times, made at least a million dollars every time when a million dollars was real money um, by finding old, tired, um, weak, wounded assets and moving them to a new place, the most famous of which was the ant farm. How many of you had an ant farm when you were a kid? You learn more by looking around. Okay. Products still sold. You can walk into a Toys R Us and you can find a new version of the ant farm. It now syncs to your phone. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what that does, but I saw in the box that it syncs to your phone and it lights up and, you know, but it's still dirt in a flat aquarium with ants running around in tunnels. It's still the basic thing that kids want in their bedroom because their mother hates it being there. That was a product sold only for high school biology classes, one per school. It was an educational product when Kosman found it and said, every kid would love to have this in their bedroom because their mothers will hate it. Perfect. And the ant farm, still sold today in Toys R Us, it's generated at least $200 million uh, since Joe moved it from place to place. Um, some of you will recognize that guy. Um, so two Jews from Cleveland stuck a cape on Jesus. That's, that's what this is. Right. It's the same story, right? Father so loves son, sends to planet, it's the same deal, right? Um, and, and, and literally, they admit that's what they did. If you're, we, as you probably know, the Info Summit is occurring in beautiful downtown Cleveland this year. Um, and so if you come to the summit, um, you literally are coming to the home of Superman. And there's a big Superman wall at the airport you, if you want to go take a picture with it and, and so forth. Uh, um, Green Hornet and Cato, which is a piece of trivia if you don't know, the famous Bruce Lee, that was his first job in the United States was being Cato, um, was the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Same asset, just moved from Old West to city. If you're old like me, you may occasionally watch a Tom Selleck show called Blue Bloods. How many of you have seen Blue Bloods? I hope you understand you're watching Bonanza. They're shooting even the same scripts. They have just moved Lauren Green and the boys from the ranch to New York City and made them cops. It's the same show right down to the family gathered together at the dinner table for the moral lesson in case you missed it during the show. It's an old asset moved, updated, but fundamentally not changed. So Mike Vance, who worked with Disney uh, for quite some time, Mike's definition of practical creativity is the combining of the old with the new and the moving of some proven thing from one place or purpose to another, not new invention. Invention is slow. Combining, relocating, and repurposing is fast. 
And it's worth noting about Disney. For quite some time, Disney didn't create any new stories. So people give, they credit Disney with this wild creativity. Uh, Disney didn't create any new stories. He mostly went and used old fairy tales, which incidentally were in the public domain, so nobody had to be paid any royalties. The first people that got any money, Mary Poppins. Disney didn't really create any new products. They're a licensor. They stuck what they had on every other kind of product. In fact, Lionel trains, how many of you had a Lionel train around the base of your Christmas tree when you were young? Good. How many of you are young enough you don't know what the hell a Lionel train is? And you, Yeah, okay, that's fine, it's all right. I mean, train itself creates a problem, doesn't it? I mean, but a hyperloop around the bottom of the Christmas tree is not going to have the same panache. Um, you know, it's going to look like you had some PVC pipe left over and didn't know what to do with it. It's not going to be really be romantic, but nonetheless. Lionel trains were in bankruptcy in 1934. Um, they were on their way out. With a last gasp of money, they licensed Mickey from Disney for a Christmas train. Again, this is 1934. No Amazon store, no. Sold 253,000 units on pre-orders to retailers in 30 days. They bought the company out of bankruptcy. Their biggest problem was making enough Mickey trains. Ingersoll watches, almost the same story, teetering, in trouble. They did the first Mickey Mouse watch. They had to cancel all the planned advertising that everybody had worked on because the pre-orders sold out the factory's entire capacity, two shifts, for eight months. But Disney didn't create the watch. Disney didn't create the train, so he created no new products. We can flip back, guys. You're doing great. Disney didn't invent licensing either. Other things had been licensed to manufacturers long before Walt got around to doing it. And as you probably know the story, they certainly didn't invent the amusement park. In Walt's entire theory of business, which hangs on my office wall, there is not a single invention, not one. Now, they did invent some things for film production as they went along out of necessity, but it was not their business model. Walt's model was, as soon as this works, lock it, load it, sell the living crap out of it. Next multiplier. To get faster business growth, stop searching for the shortest, simplest, and most direct path. Understand, by the way, so you have to be careful. You have to even be careful here. Less careful here than other places, but you have to be careful. Because sellers know this is what you want. So... The easiest, shortest, simplest path 
That's what people want. It does not equate to force multiplier and acceleration. In that vein, let me talk about youth versus wisdom for just a second. So imagine that your ship has just sank. You are the lone survivor treading water in the middle of the ocean. Within very easy swimming range, there is an island. And on it waving to you are a dozen or so women. Fat, ugly, old, toothless, stranded on an island for a long period of time. Women, close, swimming distance. Much further away, you can barely make it out, there's another island. It's flying the Playboy flag. <laughs> and there are bikini models waving to you. One yells, come on over here, but be careful of all the sharks. If you put a thousand 19-year-old men in that position, all 1,000 of them will swim or attempt to swim to the furthest away island. If you put a bunch of people my age in the same situation, we've seen Jaws. <laughs> we will swim to the close island. We will convince the fat, ugly woman to help us build a raft. We will do this in a process. <laughs> That's the difference between youth and wisdom. And so you want to think about, are you being wise about how you approach your business? Ed's remarks before I came up this morning were really about wise. How do you want your business to function? And the shortest, simplest path is you do it all and you sell the stuff. That's the shortest, simplest path. But it is not the wise path because it's not scalable. You can't speed it up. So first know that what appears simple to outsiders is often very complex to those actually doing it. Almost everything being done successfully by anybody, coaching a football team, playing quarterback for a football team, running a business, running a practice, flying a jet, if you get a chance to analyze it, it's a very sophisticated, complex process that gets you to success, and it's got a lot of steps to micro design and manage. It comes with a certain level of sophistication. And if you shun that, you are not gonna really speed your path to success. You are gonna stall and crash and burn probably before you ever get there. This loops around kind of to where I started with 
the issue of assets. So clients come to me all the time and they want, they want a better ad because and that's the shortest, simplest path they see to more sales. And they all are very short-term thinkers. How do we sell some stuff tomorrow? Sell some more stuff than we're selling right now tomorrow. The real question is, how do we create an asset that sells stuff tomorrow, next week, the week after that, the month after that, the year after that, preferably without having to fool with it much at all? So privately, when I talk to clients, I don't really talk about marketing. I talk about the creation of marketing assets. Let me show you an example. This is from a current issue of a magazine. If that's a shock to some people, they still publish them. You can actually go to Barnes & Noble and there's a whole big section of magazines. It's a remarkable thing for some people to see, but there they are. And there's a magazine called Home Business. It's about opportunities, ways you can make money from home. The magazine itself has been in print three different titles over the years, but same magazine uh, at least since uh, I was 15. is the first time I noticed it. And as has been pointed out, I'm old. So that's a long time. In this magazine, every month, in all those years, there has been this ad, this one down here. Every issue, also in about a dozen other magazines, every month, month after month after month, year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, unchanged. The company is now three generations of family members and they have had the discipline, the remarkable discipline, not to screw with the ad. This is amazing, by the way. This ad is for a thing called Little Orbit's Donuts. And it's a little portable machine. You can see a picture of it here. It's about eh, this big, maybe. So you can schlep it in your minivan, even in your Prius. Um, anywhere you want to take it, and you can make little mini donuts. And people come up and buy them, buy the bag at the horse show, at the swap meet, at the high school football team. That's the business. They sell the little machine and a little manual of, uh, of 50 different ways you can make money with the little machine. And then, of course, they sell you the dough and the cinnamon and the all that stuff to make the donuts. And it hasn't changed since at least, at least I was in my teens. Every month the ad runs in a handful to a dozen of magazines and it makes money. Now that is a marketing asset worth having. That has supported three generations of people undoubtedly sent kids to college um, who stick their nose up at the business but have taken the money to go get a degree in advanced barista. And, and, it has, um, 
And it is important to understand that that's what you will be best served by aspiring to, is the product, the service, the marketing asset, the thing that you do not have to reinvent on a frequent and regular basis. Third force multiplier, control. The more control you exercise over the sale, the faster the sale occurs and the sooner you get an opportunity to sift and sort buyers into customers, into really good customers, and develop them as customers. So control is a big issue. And most business owners do not exercise enough control over the way their buyer is making their first purchase and then becoming a customer and then being developed into great customers. So there is always a case made for each new generation of customers. Now it happens to be being made for my dear friends, the millennials. But before them, it was made for the Gen Xers and before them. So I've heard this case before. Um, I'm old, so I, I've taken this class a number of times. And the argument is always the same. Because of all the changes in these now new humans, we have to make a huge amount of changes in the way that we sell to them. That's always the argument. Here's my caution for you about that. Oh, accepting the argument often involves abandoning a lot of the control that allows you to sell effectively and develop customers effectively. And most of the time, when you give that up, you wind up in a bad place. Instead, if you know what is required for you to sell effectively, get a good customer, and develop a good customer, you have to figure out how to compel the new human to participate in that process. So we know, for example, a client of mine, that 30-minute-long infomercials work better than anything else to really get and develop a customer. They have to be seen by both parent and teen. And teen, right now, three-fourths of the college dorm rooms, they don't even have a TV. Um, TV infomercials, you may notice, are on a decline because clickers, people who sit and click from channel to channel to channel is on a decline. That's not how younger people watch TV, if in fact they watch TV at all. They watch Jimmy Fallon at 10 o'clock in the morning while they're on their treadmill. They don't watch Jimmy Fallon when it happens. And therefore, if they get bored with Jimmy Fallon, they don't click and bumble their way into an infomercial and we get a chance to sell to them. That, that's dying. So we have to deliver the same infomercial 
in different media, like webcasts and celebrity-driven 30-minute talk fests online in order to sell the same product. But what we don't do is abandon the 30 minutes because there's a direct correlation between the number of minutes, the closing percentage of the audience it's in front of, and more importantly, the differential value of those customers after the fact. So a force multiplier is control, and you want to think long and hard about giving up any, giving any of it up uh, because you are being convinced that the human unit has somehow changed and compels it. There's three things to think about when it comes to control. One is place, one is process, and the last is the benefit of the power to prescribe. So let's talk about place first. Place strategy is very interesting. I can teach for days on place strategy alone. Uh, sometime perhaps I will. But I'll try and give you the, a 10-minute version of it now that will be provocative. So where do you think the worst place is to make sales? Who wants to hazard a guess? Nice and loud. Oh, no, bankruptcy. No, 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 no. No, I have a client that made millions. Ford Motor Company loves financing bankrupt people into their next car because they can't go bankrupt again for seven years and all their bills have gone away. If they got a job and they just went bankrupt, furniture they're great. Furniture buyers, car buyers, no, 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 no. Bad thinking. Right? Anybody else want to has it a guess? Men's washroom. Oh, no, 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 no. The condom industry has done just fine there for many, many years with vending machines. Um, now, the worst place to make a sale is anywhere where direct competition exists. Any place where you stand next to and between direct competitors is the worst place to make a sale. The last place you want to be having your Get Rich in Real Estate Preview Seminar is in a hotel where there are two other Get Rich in Real Estate Preview Seminars. Bad idea. All right? Anything that makes it easy for people to shop and comparison shop, because in many cases then product superiority or service superiority goes away and it becomes a price competition. Second worst place where logic, rational thought, and analytical thinking is involved in getting to the purchase decision. Second worst place. Best place is where all that is suspended in favor of emotional response. So let me tell you some place strategy things. How many of you in the last 48 hours have seen a TV commercial for My Pillow? How many of you own a MyPillow? There you go. It's a $45 pillow. 45 bucks. It's a pillow. And why 
You may eventually find it there, but in the beginning, why didn't you find it on a shelf at Target? Because no one will buy it when it is on a shelf with a bunch of other pillows that are not $45. Very simple. My pillow has made that guy rich beyond anybody's imagination. The spot, the two-minute spot for my pillow, runs. It's the top, It's in the top five direct response TV spots of buy every week. A huge winner. The right place. I have a long story about this, which I won't tell, and many of you have heard, but I will remind you of it. At Disney, there are $300 rubber balls. At Disney, there are, it's a big ball, and at Disney, when it comes to price, there are big balls. (laughs) Disney has. Now, this side of the room is not getting stuff. You guys are getting stuff. You're getting stuff. This side of the room is not getting stuff. There's a screen. You're. um, And you think, when you see it, you think it's just there to make the $150 balls seem reasonable, but it is not. A lot of people buy the $300 balls. I promise you that does not work anywhere but Disney, where people have already completely set aside any rational thought about price. Just like the sign above the courthouse, abandon all hope, ye who enter here, It's actually above the prison, but it should be above the courthouse. Um, uh, This is abandon all thought about price when you enter here, and people do. $40 for a hot dog on your shelf. It doesn't matter. And you hear them say it. If you hang out and you listen to conversations at Disney, you'll hear this discussion about something, and the end of the conversation is always one of the parents saying, eh, we're at Disney. Right? $30 for a plastic sword you could buy at Walmart for not, we're at Disney, fuck it. Right? That's, that's what you hear them say. Right? Place matters a lot. I have a long story, which I will abbreviate, but one of the smartest brick and mortar guys I've ever met has his pop-up jewelry store at every racehorse auction I've ever been to. And he's the only vendor there who's not selling horse stuff. Jewelry. Why? Because price, there is no sale. There is no buy necklace, get earrings free. There is no, there's none of that. He is selling everything at retail plus and nobody cares. Because if you are returning home having bought a horse after promising you were not gonna buy another horse, Having a diamond tennis bracelet in the other hand, it's, it's Trump strategy. It's, don't pay attention to this, look over here. Look over here. And so he gets to sell jewelry at retail, real retail, in great quantity 
at the racehorse auction. The thing these places have in common, you understand, is there's no competition. These people have placed themselves where it is them and them alone. Where's the laziest place to sell? Well, the laziest place to sell is often, not coincidentally, equal to the worst place to sell. So the laziest place to sell is driven by search. Think how lazy this is. We'll put our store online over here, whatever that is. We will figure out what to call it so we can stick that in rankings. And people who are searching for our stuff will find their way to our store. Is there any lazier way to sell? But where are you? You are any place with all the other lazy sellers. All gathered together in one place. And what will lazy sellers do in order to compete? Cut price. Exactly. And what will the lazy seller next to them do? So if you go to a trade show, Bill Glazer and I used to go every year to the ASDAMD show, the main one in Vegas. And that is a promotional merchandise show. So when you got, as promotion for the super conference, superhero themed, when you got the little superhero stuffed dolls, and we went in the little, if you wanted a watch, all that kind of stuff, that trade show is all vendors selling that kind of stuff. Most of them importers from China, Vietnam, India, etc. And there is almost always a dozen vendors selling the same items. One's in this aisle, one's in that aisle. Whatever we would find that we would think, oh, cool, we can use this and we'll use it to promote an event or a product within the theme, we then would always make a note, okay, booth number 332 has this stuff we want, and he says we can have 144, and we're going to pay X. Next aisle, huh, same guy, same stuff. Hey, we were just over at booth such, such, and he says we can have 144 of them for $1.82 a piece. Guy says, $1.62. Okay, $1.62. Next aisle, hey, uh, 99 cents. Some of it you can get to the point they're saying, we pay you. <laughs> That's just a physical search environment. That's all it is. Worst place in the world to sell, laziest place in the world to sell. They go together, and what they do, this is very important to understand, anything that compromises your price de-accelerates your business. And that's important. Anything that compromises your price de-accelerates your business. 
Why? Because you got less fuel. The fuel for a business is money. When you have money to spend, you can buy customers, which means you can buy growth and you can buy speed. When you compromise your price and your profit margins, you deaccelerate your business. You literally have to take your foot off the gas. So price is extremely important and protecting it is extremely important. I want to tell you my favorite place story and then we will move on. My favorite place story, which I can only mention, but this is about a company I did not find this on my own, I hastily say. This was sent to me by a longtime member of ours named Jerry Jones. And I'm sure he encountered it doing legitimate research. So this is a case history about a food delivery service that advertises on porn websites. This is called out-of-category advertising. So this particular ad is typical of their ads. BLT with your BDSM, get it delivered. You can talk amongst yourselves. You can, you can help each other understand. That's the most benign of the ads. There are some others I can't show you. I would if I wasn't being on my best behavior. Um, um, so here's what they discovered. Okay? At the time, and this is, I don't know, a handful of years ago. This is 2013. Over 30% of all web traffic is dedicated to porn. Popularity of websites in the United States are in this order. Google, Facebook, Yelp, X-rated videos, and U-porn. So of the top five sites, two of them are porn sites. Here's the next thing they discovered. Nobody advertises on porn sites, but other porn sites. Therefore, their range of advertisers to get money from is relatively small. This suppresses what they can charge for ads. Therefore, at the time, their cost per impression on Google was this. Their cost per impression on Facebook was this. Their cost per impression on Twitter was this. And their cost per impression on porn sites was this. At roughly one-tenth of the cost, their ad on porn sites was one-tenth the cost of the ad on Google or Facebook or Twitter. The last thing they discovered is that a whole lot of people are watching porn at home alone. And at some point, they want food. 
this is a fabulously successful case history all about showing up alone. Being in a place where no other competitor is to a unique and captive market. If you want a marketing equation to go figure out, there's one to figure out. Let's quickly talk about process. So process, again, is all about control. So let me give you a few examples of how this impacts things. So we are here in Orlando, which is also the world headquarters of Tupperware. So how many of you have been to a Tupperware party? Raise your hands. How many of you know for a fact your mothers have been to Tupperware parties? Raise your hands. There you go. Okay. How many of you own, whether you bought it or got it as a gift, a piece of Tupperware in your kitchen? Again, you learn more looking around than you look at me. So Tupperware, for those of you who don't know, the main product line is called Tupperware. They own a bunch of other companies. But Tupperware are plastic pots with a good lid that you can turn upside down and the crap don't fall out of the plastic pot. This is the product. Right? And it makes a little noise when you pop the lid, which has no bearing on anything, by the way. This is their product. If you go to Walmart, you can buy a pile. They're shrink-wrapped. A pile of plastic pots with decent lids that won't let the stuff fall out of them for roughly the price of one Tupperware plastic pot bought at a home party. On average, they are selling at four times retail shelf price in their arguably commodity product category. So people say to me all the time, oh, I can't, I have no price elasticity because we sell a commodity. This is a commodity. Nobody buys it to decorate their house with. There's no cocktail party story. There's no nothing. It's a plastic friggin' pot to put stuff in. It's, that. it's a commodity. So don't cry to me about your commodity. They're at three to four times off-shelf retail. Why? Not because of the product. And by the way, the core product line hasn't changed in 50 years. They've added stuff. They got a salad bowl mixer that syncs to your phone. Uh, I, I kid you not. Um, you guys do know about the shoes, don't you? The GPS shoes? You don't know this? It's a millennial product. This is real. It has nothing to do with what, what we're talking about. But, but, but so these shoes sync to your phone so, uh, so you can use the GPS. So if I'm going to walk to Starbucks, um, I can put in just like you would if you were going to drive to it. And now Siri doesn't tell me to turn left or right. My shoes do. So as I walk, if I should go left, the left shoe vibrates. It, well, see, because they never look up. So to look up and see that you should turn left, so the shoe vibrates. If they should turn right, it vibrates. And they have collision avoidance technology. 
just like your car. Because, because they never look up, they're walking into shit. <laughs> so the shoe now vibrates in a different way to alert you to the fact that you're walking into a bus because <laughs> you don't see the bus. They're $400 to $900 a pair, obviously being bought with parents' money, um, but they exist. Anyway, back to this. So Tupperware has taken a commodity product, sustained a business, all the way to today, a thriving company, totally based on process, not on product. They control the environment in which it is sold to the nth degree. You go to someone's house, you go pre-decided that you are going to buy something. You are not going to be a schmuck and go and eat the cookies and drink the wine and not buy anything. You are predetermined to buy something. The party is scripted, choreographed, word for word script. The good demonstrators know the scripts, control over the process. I own part of a company for several years. We made a lot of money in the chemical deterrent business. Um, think of it as Mace. It wasn't Mace brand, but little chemical deterrents. Ladies might have them on their key rings or attached to their purse. You might have a bigger one by your door at home if you're not a gun person, or you might have it in your car. So chemical deterrents. You could buy them at the time on racks in convenience stores and drug stores for about five bucks, give or take. We sold our smallest keychain chemical deterrent for $39.95. It was exactly the same unit that you could buy in the blister pack on the rack at the convenience store. Same vendor, same everything. The only difference was process, because we sold them in crime safety classes, where the employer, let's say a hospital, who has a lot of nurses who work the night shift and have to walk to their car in an unsafe parking lot. They would let our instructor come in and do a crime safety class for all the employees, at which we sold chemical deterrents. Because one of the 10 things you need to protect yourself are chemical deterrents. And you need one, and you need one in the car, and you need one at home, and you need one on every keychain, and so there's bundles. Average sale, $200. Close rate varied by the instructor, but 50%. So if there were 50 employees, we're going to do 25 units and an average of $200 a piece. The convenience store is at $5 a unit. Now, all that went way up when we had our best day in life was when news broke on TV about the real estate rapist. This, is, this was gold for this business because women in real estate show a house, somebody shows up, they're alone with them in an empty house. This is an invitation for bad things to happen. And when it did, crime safety classes in every real estate office, close rate 
top price. Process, you understand, not product. So my favorite is the Cleveland Clinic um, Executive Physical, which you see these things advertised. Mayo does them. They're the one-day whiz-bang. You get everything. These really are giant sales exercises. So if you've never done it, uh, so from a control standpoint, they take away your clothes. I haven't figured out how to do this in any other sales environment yet. (laughs) But you aren't going anywhere because you are in a hospital gown with your bare ass hanging out in the back and you do not have access to your clothes. And it's, what was it during the day? It's nine different sales presentations. So they they go draw your blood and then you go see the nutritional counselor for 45 minutes who sells you a multi-week or multi-month nutritional program. Then you go do your treadmill test. Then you go see the exercise physiologist person who sells you a big-ass rubber ball and a stretchy doohickey and a series of classes. And then you go get another test, and then you go. Uh, In Miracle Era, hearing aid business, I increased the closing average by doing nothing but doubling the length of the exam. I didn't change anything except doubled the amount of time that they were there, which doubled their emotional investment in not walking away empty-handed. So process is important. The other thing about process I want to say very quickly, and so processes like this, these are two illustrations from The Annoying Little Indian. Where are you? Are you in here? There you go. Stand on your chair so everybody can say, there he is. There he is. All right, there you go. Okay, there you go. So, so our friends at Infusionsoft, our friends at e-launchers, so they all have like charts and diagrams that look like this or much worse, right? So these are two of his. Here's a worse one, right? And mostly when you start to do these diagrams for people, they leave the room, But this is important part of your process is to plug all the holes. Because the single most expensive thing to do in business is to get a lead and to convert them to a customer. A force multiplier is not wasting any leads that can in any way, shape, or form be monetized. Because again, what does that give you? More money to spend, which is fuel, and it allows you to push the pedal all the way to the floor. Last force multiplier we're going to have time probably to talk about. Now we're going to squeeze in two more. So we're going to do this one real fast. Is to stop selling and be able to prescribe. Prescribing is fast. Selling is slow. So being accepted as an absolute authority gives you the power to prescribe. 
Ed mentioned, um, when you have your lunch choices, if you can go visit with Dustin, you should have one of these things that you've already received. Um, uh, he'll be talking about the new book that we have both co-authored, by the way, on effective presentations. But the context around that is how do you get accepted as an absolute authority? Because when you are accepted as an absolute authority, you don't have to sell anymore. So the 156 closes and the how do we trap the objection and all that goes away. Sales cycle shortens because you get to prescribe. Think how short this sales cycle is. You're there getting your executive physical to clean the clinic, and the doc calls you in the room and says, you need a stent now. Pitch the intercom. Get that cold metal table right in here right now because his ass is going to operating room 36, and we're cutting. Shortest sales cycle you'll ever see. Guy climbs up on the table, lays down, and off he goes. Power to prescribe. Having people who are there to make a now decision. I don't have time to talk about this in length. I wish I did. But I've changed two clients on this in the past month. They're doing long sales calls, telephone calls with people, without having them prepped in advance that the reason they're on the call is to make a decision about either doing something or not doing something. Why? why and so now you're stuck having to fight that battle. No, we want them there to make a now decision right now. Bill Glazer in his menswear stores, and he taught all menswear retailers to sell by appointment. Call your customers. It's spring. Don't just tell them to come in. Book a damn appointment. Why? Because now they're coming to make buying choices, not just coming to look. I don't have time to do it all because I want to do the biggie. So the biggie, the big accelerator, Above all other accelerators, keep in mind now that acceleration or deacceleration has an enormous amount to do with how much money you have to spend to acquire customers. If you don't have gas, so how many of you have barely made it to a gas station? You're like almost out of gas, right? What are you doing in that last couple miles? You're trying to coast to the light so you don't have to stop and really step on the gas to start, right? Right. Well, that's what you have to do if you don't have money. That's what you're doing with your business. You're, you're driving your business all the time as if you were on the last eighth of a tank rather than with a full tank. Here's the force multiplier to make that go away. I have a quick question for Ed or somebody in the back. I believe I hit till 10.30 and the countdown clock has me with seven minutes. Which is it? Thank you very much. I'm not even going to use them all. 
So here's the force multiplier that lets you drive your business all the time as if you had a full tank. Get more valuable customers. This is elegantly simple. If you have more valuable customers, it allows you to spend more to get them and to keep them, to wow them. So we always joke about Disney. Disney lives in a world where price is virtually no object. And the Imagineers will tell you they don't start with budgets. That's not where they start. They start with what's the coolest, best, most amazing thing we can do in remaking this attraction or making this new attraction. Then, can we spend that? <coughs> and in most cases, the answer is, hell yes. Worst case scenario, we'll just raise the prices again. You know how many times they've raised their ticket prices in the last 18 months? Five. Doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Because it's Disney. But a lot of other businesses, maybe they don't have that kind of price elasticity, but they have more than they think and they would have a lot more if they focused on customers for whom price is not an object. So I risk getting somebody in trouble by telling this story, but it's an instructive story. So I'm going to tell it in a way that hopefully it is never heard by his government authorities and he doesn't get arrested because he's a good client and he's still paying. Um, 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 so... Everett Farnell, where's Everett? Where are you? Are you in a room, big guy? There you are, okay. So Everett's a very skilled copywriter and marketing consultant, but in his former life, Everett's business was when you had some critter in your attic or in between your walls or in your basement, um, Everett's company would come and get the critter and sell you a what is it, uh, animal remediation protection plan so that it didn't happen again and they didn't spread rabies to your little baby and there's all these zoological diseases that can get in the walls and so forth. So that's his business. Okay. So I have to tell, so two weeks ago, I have a critter inside a wall of my home. I'm not sure what kind of critter, Sounds to me like an elephant with claws. I don't know exactly what it is, and I don't know exactly where it is, but I know where I hear it, which is in the bedroom. So we're working on it, but we're not working on it with an expert. I am sleeping in my recliner in my basement office because I can't take it. Um, had somebody said... By any means, I can get that guy today. I would not have asked how much. 
This is not a question that would have leapt to mind. Just go get it. So I have a client in England who bought a house and attic ever? Its attic was full of bats. England actually has a law, by the way. You can't just go get them. You have to, like, wait till they want to leave. I'm serious, right? This is where we were headed, by the way. Um, so they have a law that you can't go get them, you can't kill them, you can't. They're a protected little critter, and if they've chosen your attic, you can try and coax them out. You can, you know play music they don't like, but not too loud. And so my client is telling me this story on his monthly coaching call. So he is using $3,000 worth of time to tell me his tale of woe about the bats that they can't get to leave this house. Mike Crow, wherever you are, this is a great, you really need a good home inspector uh, story. Um, and I said, I got a guy. See, because they can't have anybody come out and deal with this in England because it's illegal to deal with it. So there's nobody to call. I said, I got a guy. And I, what I suggested was, I'm sure he'll talk to you. You know, you get him on the phone. He's got to have some tips about you know, what to put up there that will discourage them and make them move or something, you know. So what he wound up doing is hiring Everett to come to England under dark of night. <laughs> Did he fly first class or coach? Okay, so business class to London, a couple extra days of vacation, and a nice fat fee to sneak into England and get these bats out of my attic. Probably all in 10 grand would be my guess. Very close. Client makes a lot of money. Client doesn't care how much. There are clients in every category of product and every category of service for whom Price is not even in the top three, four, or five. And he has generously volunteered, even though this is no longer his business. If I get home and the problem has not been solved by the bumbling idiots I left in charge, guess who's coming to Cleveland? Uh, that chubby, bald guy back there with the beard. Um, and if we have to burn the place down in a controlled burn, it's okay, by me. Understand this is who you want. Are they a little more difficult? You say high maintenance like it's a bad thing. So, my friend, the late Joan Rivers, her advice to, it would be her advice to young millennial women, is it's no harder to fall in love with, seduce, and marry a really rich guy. And they all leave their underwear on the floor. It's not proportionately harder 
to get a high value client than to get a low value client and they all leave their underwear on the floor. So you might as well have one that you can build in aggravation money for the underwear left on the floor. When a client comes to visit me and walks through my screen door and destroys the front door on my house, I am much less grumpy about it when he is giving me $200,000 than if he was giving me $2,000. I laugh. I would not laugh if he was giving me $2,000. So it is not the same multiple of difficulty to get a multiple value customer or client or patient. So the biggest of all gold keys to the vault is the ownership of the moderately to exceptionally affluent customer with ability and willingness to buy now and the finan and financial stamina going forward. So let me dissect it just quickly because there's five things in there to take note of. One is ownership of. That's different than we're selling to. That's different than they're coming in now and that, no, 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 you own them. Affluent is the second thing. Third is they have the ability to buy now. That means they're capable of making a decision. They have a place to buy what it is that, to put what it is that you sell. So rich people who live in studio apartments are no good if you sell $25,000 garage makeovers. Uh, they have the financial ability, but they don't have any place to put the thing. Okay? The willingness to buy now is number four. Are they the kind of people who make buying decisions and buy stuff? And, and fifth is financial stamina, um, meaning that they can continue to buy again and again and again and again. And it doesn't much matter if the economy goes up, the economy goes down, the we have a recession, we don't have a recession, the stock market gains 2,000, it loses 2,000. The day of the big stock market crash in 2008, 3,000, 4,000 points, I think, in a day. A friend of mine and I were in a very expensive restaurant. We had a relatively early reservation, 5.30. So there weren't a lot of people there at 5.30. But by 6.30, the place had filled up Every table was full, and everybody was ordering except us. We don't drink. Really expensive wine. The money was flowing. Even as the stock market crashed on the TV monitor right outside the door. I assure you, if we had left there and driven down the street to the Olive Garden, the place would have been empty. Panicked people, canceled dinner reservations, stay home. saw that although her retail sales of her fashion line online, uh, Ivanka Trump has gone from number 556 in the online rankings to number four since she's been picked on. But of course, she lost Macy's and all that other stuff. So she might take a big income hit this year. 
Her net worth is $700 million. Let's say she loses $200 million of it. Is it going to affect anything she buys? Hell no. Mm -hmm. Now take a couple zeros off of that and take a customer who's got a total net worth of $500,000 and he loses $200,000 of it. You think he starts to make different choices? You bet. And I'm not suggesting you only get customers that are worth $500 million, but I'm suggesting you climb up the food tree as much as you can. The doctors, there's probably some in the room who market themselves nationally rather than locally, and people fly from various parts of the country to come to them for whatever. Guess what they get to do with fees because the person is flying all the way from. So I do want to mention that um, next year's um, Dan-only mid-year event will be all about climbing up the food tree will be all about advertising, marketing, selling, crafting products and offers, everything for high value and affluent customers. And you never get invited to these things unless you ask for it. So you can put yourself on the list by fax or if you insist, handing Vicki a note while you're here. This June's event, we have 11 places left at Renegade Millionaire 2.0. Um, if that's news to you and you never got invitation information because you never requested it, there is some back at the GTIC area on the rack. So, two huge questions to consider when you go home. One, what are you getting up in the morning most focused on? Showing up? Solving problems? Checking all your stuff? Or how do I acquire better, more valuable customers and make simultaneous deposits to present bank and future bank? What are you getting out of bed in the morning focused on for the day? Second big question. What percentage of your time goes to each category of thinking? So how much of your time this week did you spend on checking all your stuff? How much of your time this week did you spend on solving problems? How much of your time this week did you spend being distressed over whatever the hell the Democrats or the Republicans? Or how much of your time was devoted to this key thing? Guess what? If you reallocate your time, you get legitimate, real, authentic acceleration. So those are your two questions. Uh, we'll pick up tonight on personal productivity. Um, always like quotes, like Spurrier City likes quotes, so here's one to end on. I couldn't wait for success, so I went ahead without it. It's from Jonathan Winters. You can Google him or Wikipedia him. Uh, thank you much. Hope we had a good morning. Hope you got some stuff you You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.